It's Friday, August 14th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. President Trump on Thursday announced a major foreign policy achievement. Israel and the United Arab Emirates have agreed to establish a full normalization of relations, and Israel will also suspend its annexation plans in the West Bank. This makes the UAE the third Arab country that has active diplomatic ties with Israel. Dave Lawler, world editor at Axios, joins us for what this big announcement means. Next, doctor's offices, nursing homes, and federal officials are in a scramble to obtain point-of-care COVID-19 tests from the only two companies that have emergency approval to produce them. There have been some concern about accuracy with these tests, but they are useful for quicker results and don't need to be sent away to a lab. Sarah Kraus, reporter for The Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. Finally, as dentists have started to open up, they are seeing patients come in with a new set of symptoms and they are dubbing it mask mouth. Dentists are seeing inflammation in gums, decaying teeth, and really bad breath. Wearing a mask can lead to dry mouth and a host of other problems unless proper precautions are taken. Melkorka Licea, features writer at the New York Post, joins us for what to do about mask mouth. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. I think this is one of those stories that everybody, regardless of your political uh, uh, stripes are on that sort of thing, everybody's excited about the fact that an Arab, a Muslim Arab government is uh, making peace with Israel. Joining us now is Dave Lawler, world editor at Axios. Thanks for joining us, Dave. Great to be with you. President Trump on Thursday announced a major foreign policy achievement. Israel has struck a deal with the United Arab Emirates to establish full normalization of relations Israel also is going to forego any plans to annex territory in the West Bank. They want to focus on improving ties with the rest of the Arab world. So it's a pretty big deal. This is only the third country now that has normalized some type of relations with Israel. So it seems to be a pretty big announcement. Dave, tell us a little bit about it. Yes. So this in some ways came out of nowhere and in some ways didn't. I'm not sure that anybody was expecting this announcement today um, that the UAE and Israel would officially recognize one another and establish diplomatic relations. As you say, it's been decades since another country, another Arab country recognized Israel. And so this really is a major breakthrough. It has been going on behind the scenes. The UAE and Israel have been working together, actually, uh, particularly against Iran, but sort of on a broad range of, of issues for a while now. But it's gone on in secret. They haven't been they haven't spoken about it openly. And this is kind of bringing that out into the open. And it really is. It's a landmark announcement. The leaders have spun it a bit differently afterwards, so we have to see how it plays out in practice, but it was a big announcement today. Egypt and Jordan are the only other two Arab countries that have active diplomatic ties with Israel. You did mention that each country was kind of spinning it their own way. Tell us how that plays out, because everybody stands to gain something a little different from this. For President Trump, obviously, a major foreign policy achievement. Uh, This is something he can tout later on before the election comes. But what's in it for Israel? What's in it for the UAE? So Trump put out this statement, which was a joint statement. It was signed by the leaders of all three countries, and it had basically two main points. One was that um, Israel and the UAE, as we mentioned, would, would open diplomatic relations. The other was that Israel would suspend its plans to annex parts of the West Bank, which, as you know, had been very controversial. Um, and so for Trump, he gets to look like a statesman. We have some reporting that he's hoping for a signing ceremony, maybe at the White House, to really 
tout this as a big diplomatic achievement ahead of the election. Uh, but for Benjamin Netanyahu, who just gave a televised address, this is quite a sensitive matter. He, he leads a right-wing coalition. There's a lot of pressure to move ahead with his campaign promise to annex parts of the West Bank. He's now said he'll put that on hold. But what he did was he framed this as temporary. He said, look, Trump said this was part of the deal. We couldn't move ahead on annexations and we can't do it without U.S. support. So I had to put that on hold to get this bigger deal. But that doesn't mean this is off the table going forward. So, so he's basically reserving the right to still move ahead with annexations, just not at this time. Uh, for MBZ, the crown prince of the UAE, he emphasized the other point that I got Israel to hold up on annexations, you know, that annexations are suspended. And he downplayed the diplomatic relations side of the deal, saying we've agreed to work toward diplomatic relations, which sounds a lot different than what Trump was saying, which is that this is a done deal. So they've had their own spin to sell it to a domestic and a regional audience, but they are all signed on this same joint statement that Trump gave. So something's got to give to a degree. How important is this for the Trump administration right now? Obviously, in the United States, domestically, we have a huge problem with coronavirus that seems to be top of mind for a lot of people. Obviously, the economy as well, as it's kind of attached to what's going on with the pandemic. And this, a foreign policy issue, how does this improve his standing, I guess, in the country or with winning points for the election? So this might be the only thing Trump does between now and the election that Joe Biden will actually come out and say was a good thing. Joe Biden released a statement saying that it's a, it's a good thing that Israel and the UAE had agreed to normalize relations. So this is something that, you know, Trump can position himself as looking statesmanlike, as the kind of guy who can deliver deals internationally. That has not always been his reputation. You know, he's, he's really pulled the U.S. out of more deals than he's put together, right, internationally. So this is a little bit of a different side to Trump's campaign. You know, foreign policy has not been a huge part of the campaign except for this anti-China drive. So in all of those senses, it's a good thing for Trump. Now you raise the fact that coronavirus is looming over everything. Do I think that there are many voters who in November are going to be thinking about this deal rather than about how the U.S. is doing on coronavirus? Perhaps not. Jared Kushner seemed to be a pretty big figure in this. Uh, He's been working on Middle East peace efforts for more than three years now. How big a part of this deal was he? He was certainly a big part of it. And and one of his efforts has been to bring these Gulf countries and Israel closer together. They have a lot of overlapping interests, particularly they don't like Iran, but also economically it makes sense for them to work more closely together. So he's definitely been trying to get these leaders to talk to one another. He's been trying to improve relations there. You mentioned his Middle East peace plan, which you know was, was kind of dismissed upon release as, as unworkable. Obviously, we don't have peace between the Israelis and Palestinians. And it's important to note that the Palestinians aren't a party to this deal either. So this is not peace in our time in the Middle East. Uh, but, in, but in terms of this sort of smaller objective, which is getting people that we get along with in the Middle East to get along better with one another, that does seem to have some momentum. Well, in the next few weeks, there's going to be, as you mentioned, hopefully a signing uh, bilateral agreements on all this stuff. I know the president has said he hopes to maybe host some of that. So we'll see if that happens. But in the meantime, just a good deal for the president and his administration. Dave Lawler, world editor at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. All right. Thanks so much. (laughs) 
there are two companies that have emergency use authorization for their tests. One is struggling to produce enough analyzers to meet demand, and the other is struggling to make enough tests. Joining us now is Sarah Kraus, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Sarah. Thanks for having me. We've been talking about testing throughout this whole process of the coronavirus pandemic. And one of the tests that everybody's kind of been looking for are these point-of-care COVID-19 tests, something that you could find at a doctor's office, a nursing home, something like that, where you can just basically go take the test there, and maybe 15, 20 minutes later, you'd get your results. And right now, we only have two companies that are approved to actually make and distribute these things, but there's so much demand for them, it's really hard for them to keep up right now. Sarah, tell us a little bit about these. Sure. So these are, as you say, point of care tests that sit you know, in a doctor's office, in a nursing home and deliver results in about 15 minutes. And what I was writing about in particular are rapid response antigen tests. So they are looking for virus proteins while some other tests look for the virus's genetic material. Um, but for this particular type of test, which represents a small but growing area of COVID-19 testing in the U.S., there are two companies that have emergency use authorization for their tests. One is struggling to produce enough analyzers to meet demand and the other is struggling to make enough tests. Now, what is the accuracy of these? I know that we've seen a lot of stories about how sometimes they can deliver false negatives, things like that. How do these tests fare? That is still a concern. Um, and early sort of figures said that these tests had a higher chance of producing a false negative than the sort of PCR or molecular tests that were out there at the time. Now, federal officials have said that as these tests are more widely used, it's becoming clear that the accuracy is more comparable, but it's still a concern. Some doctor's offices have said, you know, they're a little bit wary and, and really because they don't want to tell someone that they're negative and let them go back to school or go back to work. And when, in fact, um, they are infected. So in, in some cases, this does require a follow up uh, molecular test. So who are these two companies that are the only ones authorized at this moment? And you mentioned that they each have their own kind of unique problems. So tell us who the two companies are. Sure. So one is Quidel Corp and one is Becton Dickinson and Company. And these two companies create both the test as well as the analyzer or box that you insert the test in to get the result. So you need, you know, as you can imagine, that ecosystem has a lot of different components that all have to fit together to create a system that works. And these are testing systems that also run flu tests or strep tests. And some of them were already in circulation prior to the pandemic. But because there's such a thirst for COVID testing, particularly testing that delivers results in minutes rather than days, their systems are are in high demand. Um, so it's it's about being able to get access to both the analyzer to run the test as well as the tests themselves. And now one of the important questions for everything, how much do they cost? Because they have a unique structure with how to either buy them, you can lease them, let's say, you know, buy the box, but buy a bunch of other tests for flu and strep throat, including COVID yeah. tests. They have like this weird structure on how to acquire these things. Yeah, there's different sales policies at each company, but if we look at Quidel, for example, um, they sell the analyzers outright for about $1,200 each, or they give the analyzer for free if you agree to buy a certain number of tests, COVID and non-COVID, to, to run on it. Um, and so... Um, you know, that this is something that practices, you know, small either pediatricians or doctor's offices are trying to figure out what they can afford. You know, do they need to use one of these companies' flu tests, you know, instead of what they're 
currently using because in buying them along with COVID tests, they're able to get this machine. So there is sort of a, a business choice that some practices that want these machines are having to make, you know, and in the background, the federal government has placed a large order for a lot of these machines to dispatch to nursing homes where there's been a lot of outbreaks and really in outbreak settings are where experts say these tests are useful. Um, they can help you sort of quickly identify people who are infected and, and then isolate and, and do contact tracing from there. So the ability to quickly get information that you can act on is the, the main benefit of this type of test. I know right now, obviously, we're facing a surge in cases in a lot of places and there's the need for mass testing. But do they feel that these kind of point of contact tests are going to be the future, basically, when maybe we don't need as much testing? These are the ones that they're going to be using primarily? You know, I think in particularly over the next several months, you know, we're going to have a mix of tests. These tests, these rapid antigen tests are a pretty small component of testing in the U.S. right now, but they're expected to, to grow rapidly. There are other molecular point of care tests. You know, the Abbott ID now is one that that folks might have heard about. Um, those are also used in, you know, doctor's office type settings. So right now we're at this moment where there are a number of new testing technologies that are being brought online that will continue to diversify that pool. Um, you know, so it's sort of in flux at this time. And Most of the tests that the average consumer is getting right now is a molecular or so-called like PCR test. And when it comes to the shortages that these companies are facing, is it kind of the same shortages that a lot of other testing needs are, uh, you know, swabs, different things like that? Yeah, um, it's it's swabs and it's pure manufacturing capacity, um, you know, in terms of being able to crank these machines and, and, and tests out fast enough to then dispatch to all the places where they're wanted and needed. I mean, it definitely seems like these rapid response tests are going to be increasing in, in demand overall. As, as we mentioned, doctors, nursing homes, it'd be great to just have something so you don't have to wait days and you get that answer right away. But just like everywhere else, the demand is so great. And the supplies are so few, it's they're just having a hard time keep up. Yeah. And, you know, I think in July, you know, when you saw people waiting two weeks or even longer for the results of diagnostic tests that were sent all the way out to labs, it sort of underscored the importance of immediate results that you can act on and, and sort of have information that can lead to, you know, subsequent decisions to isolate or contact trace, you know, so there's a thirst for, for answers quickly now. Sarah Krause, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. It has the alliteration, but uh, also it's sort of a play on mess mouth, which most of us are familiar with. But <laughs> right. for those of us who are not, <laughs> it's uh, when people get, you know, black and cracked teeth from doing mess. Joining us now is Melkorka Lisea. Features writer at the New York Post. Thanks for joining us, Mel Korka. Thank you so much for having me. So dentists have been reopening their doors, and they're saying that some of their patients are coming in with a new set of symptoms that they've called mask mouth. Obviously, this has to do with wearing the face coverings because of the coronavirus pandemic. And they're saying that people are coming in and having some problems. I love the quote from one dentist that she spoke to. Quote, patients are coming into us like, wow, my breath smells. I need a cleaning. So I saw that. I thought it was hilarious. But, uh, you know, it, it, some of the reasonings behind it seem to be generally true. So tell us what you're hearing from dentists about mask mouth. 
So one of the big things about wearing a mask is that we tend to want to breathe with our mouths open, which is something that, you know, typically without a mask on, you wouldn't be doing. So when you start to breathe with your mouth open, it actually makes your mouth get dry and your saliva doesn't cover your teeth the way it should, which is leading to some of these issues. And what kind of things are they seeing in actual people's mouths? There's issues with gums and cavities. There's a bunch of things they're looking at. You know, it's, it's leading to just more general bacteria in the mouth. So that could lead to gum disease. It can lead to cavities. And if it's not taken care of, it could lead to more serious things like, you know, a heart attack, which hopefully nothing like that would happen. But yeah, it's sort of exacerbating these issues. Why did they come up with that name of mask mouth? So they told me, you know, it's catchy, of course, it has the alliteration, but uh, also it's sort of a play on mess mouth, which most of us are familiar with. But <laughs> right. for those of us who are not, <laughs> it's uh, when people get, you know, black and cracked teeth from doing mess. Now, this is an interesting story to me only because obviously throughout the pandemic, a lot of things shut down and people weren't doing a lot of their routine checkups, whether it be at the doctor's office or at dentist's office. And there has been this conversation about, is it safe to go back to these things? Actually, the WHO, the World Health Organization, just offered some new guidance saying that you should be careful about going to your dentist's office and delay some of these routine dental checkups because of what goes on there. Obviously, the dentist is right in your mouth. They use sprays and different things that could kick up virus particles. So when I saw this in my head, I was like, well, dentists want to get back to work. They want people to not put stuff off. So they're talking about some of these problems that people are experiencing now, but at the same time, the WHO has conflicting guidance. So it's kind of like, who do you believe in this kind of situation? Totally. Yeah. You know, I think it really does just come down to taking really good care of your teeth right now, <laughs> whether or not it is going into the dentist, but just like take oral hygiene maybe more seriously than ever. Sounds like a safe in-between and I think the WHO even offered guidance saying, well, you should do like some type of telemedicine thing, you know, get on a Skype call or Zoom call with your patients and instruct them on how to properly take care of yourself. So in the dentist that you spoke to about this, what did they say? What can we do to try to cut down on this mask mouth? Yeah. So they basically were like, simple, try to breathe with your mouth, clo with your mouth closed and with your nose. <laughs> Um, and, and things like, um, using a tongue scraper, they said is really great, um, just to get all that bacteria off, um, maybe to brush your teeth more often during the day, three times a day, and to definitely floss and use mouthwash, uh, very regularly are all good things to do. And they also recommended, uh, you know, to maybe cut down on things that dehydrate us. So coffee and alcohol, if you can cut that down, it helps keep the saliva in the mouth. Yeah, drinking a lot of water, which, you know, obviously once you have the mask on, it's tough to do all these things. So it's just kind of uh, um, uh, be conscious of these slight adjustments that we should be making so you don't get the really smelly breath out of this. And I mean, I guess it's coming across if dentists are talking about it that way. Yeah, totally. And I mean, it does make sense if you're wearing a mask. We all are like suddenly like, wait, does my breath smell like that? We're <laughs> <laughs> right. more aware of it suddenly. Now, now you're only <laughs> smelling your own breath. <laughs> Exactly. It's like, oh, God, okay. <laughs> Melkorka Lisea, features writer at the New York Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Of course. Thank you so much again. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.